Hi all, a quick note before we jump into the episode. During this episode, there's a remark about toilet cleaners. There was some confusion from listeners as to who was making that remark. We were referring to a specific quote by an author other than us. We've linked that information in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. We thought we made that clear in the conversation, but for clarity's sake, we just want to be upfront and make it clear now before we jump into it. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on today? Not so much, my man. It is a beautiful day here in Asheville, North Carolina. Sun's out. We are getting vaccine number two later this afternoon. Um, so things are looking up for the time being. How are you? All right. There is the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, we uh, we just got or are getting vaccine number two as well this week. And more importantly, my college athletes are now getting the vaccine. So things are looking on the up and up like we're we're headed back to some sort of normalcy. So everything is good. Yeah, that stupid variant is throwing us for a loop because it seems like it has um, more ability to spread and infect kids, which of course is terrifying given that we have a kid that we love very much. But um we will wait and see how the data unfolds there. We're not ready to hop on a plane or anything crazy like that, but hopefully we're getting closer. All right. So let's dive into this week's topic. Actually, before we get into that, let's talk about our wonderful Patreon program, which is here because, you know, we don't do sponsorship. We don't take money from supplement companies, from magic pills, from all this stuff that... You probably hear on all the other podcasts we listen to, and some of it may work, some of it might not, but we decided, you know, we stand for things that have science research backing, and we want to feel good about what we're bringing to you guys. So instead, we decided to support ourselves, which is establishing this Patreon group, which you get all sorts of goodies. We're actually, you know, as we were- Did you just say goodies, Steve? I did. Nice. All sorts of goodies, you know? My wife's a first grade teacher. That's how you talk. So, anyways, tonight we are actually recording an exclusive book club interview, get-together, Zoom meeting, whatever you want to call it, um, with our favorite author. So, Cal Newport. Wow. That is right. Did you just forget Cal's name for a minute, Steve? No, I was going for the dramatic pause. Wow. Well, now Cal Newport is um, Steve's favorite author. So yes, we have a live book club that is monthly where we all read a book and then we invite the author for a discussion and Q&A. We've got signed copies of our books, um, neat guides to resilience, toughness. We've got a quarterly mastermind group. Um exclusive podcasts. There's just all kinds of neat stuff between five and 20 bucks. You support us, help us do what we do. 
Um, and in turn, uh, you get that swag. So yeah, check it out. www.patreon slash the growth equation. And, um, let's get to the show. All right. We're all over the place today, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be a great show because we've got a really good topic that I think is going to be fascinating to dive into. And I think the big, you know, if I was to summarize the big topic, it is what is the value of hard work? Right. So there is um, a notion that hard work is super important and hard work is super important, but it's not the only thing that impacts performance and results. And sometimes people fall for the trap of under indexing the importance of hard work. More often, people fall for the trap of over indexing for hard work. So Steve wrote about this in the newsletter last week. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've kind of already been primed for this deep dive. If not, um, well, Steve, let's give him the context. Steve was scrolling on Instagram, which we tell everyone not to do because it's bad for their mental health. And he came across one of his, maybe his second favorite author, <laughs> Rachel Hollis. And Steve, what was Rachel Hollis saying on Instagram? I was not scrolling on Twitter or on Instagram. You I can't even not. keep them straight. Instagram, Twitter, all the things, Steve. I do not. I have never read Rachel Hollis's books, but I know they're extremely popular because they're all over the place. But I was just caught because... There was this controversy, like all things on social media, and Rachel Hollis put out, uh, for those who don't know, a very popular self-help author, um, best-selling author of several books. I haven't read them, so I can't tell you what they're about, but a lot of empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, she put up this Instagram video where she was, you know, responding to comments of in her Instagram feed of being criticized a little bit um, about not being relatable. And then she went on this rant about how her entire goal is just that to not be relatable. And the reason for that is because she works her ass off that's what essentially she said, so that she can have things like a maid and helpers and all this other stuff. Wasn't the line that set everyone off, Stephen? I don't have an Instagram account, so I just heard this secondhand and, and then um, got to see the news coverage. But wasn't the line basically like, I work really hard and I'm not ashamed that I have people come clean my toilets twice a week? Yes. So that that's what it was. And... Interesting choice um, to, to a focus. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. But anyways, that was the line that set people off. And then she went down this rabbit hole of saying, essentially, I get up at 4 a.m. because other people won't. Right. And that's the reason that I have these things, because if you just worked hard, you too could write self-help books that sell millions of copies and have toilet cleaners come not once, but twice a week. Just got to work harder. And and that was the basic gist of it. And that right there, you know, I saw this. I'm like, ah, oh, I got to write something about this. Not because of Rachel Hollis, but because we have this idea in our head 
that hard work is the separator that if I just work hard enough that I can achieve success. And it's part of our, our society, especially in America, we have this meritocracy where we sit there and say, if you just work hard enough, you're going to achieve success. And the flip side of that is, you know, if you haven't achieved whatever you define as success, well, it's because you weren't working hard enough. And it's just this very interesting, you know, uh, paradigm here, which I think we can explore in multiple directions. But first, does is that true, right, is something we can explore. And then second, like, how does hard work ac- actually matter and does it di- differentiate? Yeah. All right. Well, let's start here. So hard work helps, but it's not the only thing. And something that um, really caught me by surprise, Steve, when I was reading your newsletter for the first time um, was just some of the data on the impact of deliberate practice on performance and outcomes. Um, And deliberate practice, for those that don't know, it is a very um, deeply focused, intentional um, way to practice at a craft. So it's a really good proxy for hard work. My hunch is that, uh, a research psychologist would say that deliberate practice is hard work. It's, it's just a different, more special word for it. So this research, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. It looked at not how much better does deliberate practice make someone, but if it compares me and Steve in a sport in music in chess and writing, it would say that what's the, the amount of separation that deliberate practice, aka hard work, gets us is X. And I was expecting it to be somewhere between 40 and 60%. And part of it is my brain always has this like nature nurture, 50-50, things are always in the middle. And I thought 40 to 60% was like under-indexing. I think most people think it's like 80 to 100%. But the numbers were astonishing. Can you pull that up, Steve, and tell us kind of the differentials for different areas of practice? Yeah, sure. I've got it right in front of me. And just you're you're spot on, Brad. And just to be clear, you know, the example I like to give is if, Brad, you run a five minute mile and I run a four minute mile, that one minute difference, it's how much of that difference can be explained by me working harder than you, right? So if it's the whole minute, then it would be 100%. If it's like 30 seconds, it's 50%. It's a very basic um, explanation there. But in a 2014 meta-analysis, researchers found that deliberate practice explained about 24% of the difference in games, 23% in music endeavors, 20% for sport, 5% in education, and only 1% in business, okay? So you're sitting there and you're thinking, in the best case scenario, which is games, which would be something like chess, right? A very strict, um, constricted kind of, you know, modality is 24%. And then, you know, my favorite part of this was the researchers then, I think two years later, did a follow-up study because they saw, oh, it makes about 20% of the difference in sport. And they said, well, what if we look at how good you are, right? At the level of sport, right? Are we talking rec league, 
you know, soccer or are we talking, you know, trying to make the professionals? And what they found is when they looked at by level, how much of deliberate practice, this very focused, intense, hard work matters is once again, they found that in this study, they found that in general, it explained about 18 percent, which backs up the 20 percent of early. For the nerds out there that want to be impressive at your nerdy cocktail parties, um, we call this restricting the range. Yes. And when I first heard about restricting the range, I went around, this is pre-COVID, to every cocktail party I was at, which I assure you is not too many, and I would make sure to bring up restricting the range in every conversation. Exactly. Because it just sounds so neat and smart, and it's a fascinating topic. Um, yes. Exactly. It's that restricted range that, that, that really matters. And it's interesting when they restricted the range to just elite level athletes, it went from explaining again, 18 to 20% all the way down to 1%. So when we're talking the best of the best, who practices harder really doesn't differentiate much at all. Yeah. The more that you restrict the range, the less it matters, which makes sense because once you're at that top level of any kind of pursuit, A, everybody's working pretty hard, and B, you've already weeded out like the genetic factors that are going to get you to the top. Exactly. And I think that's an important concept. And I think, you know, it, it, it's easy to restrict it to elite, but although we don't have data on this, I think a lot more people work pretty dang hard than we give them credit for, right? So- if I'm if I'm you know diving into the world of running, right, the walk on Division One cross country athlete probably works pretty comparable to the people who get top three at the NCAA championship. You know, if everybody's running seventy to hundred miles a week, if you're trying to run a ten k in in NCAA. Right. Yeah, I feel really strongly about this because as a armchair runner, I feel like I worked so hard and I never got faster than a three-hour marathon. And one of our good friends, Mike Joyner, told me that really hard work can get anyone to a three-hour marathon. And once you're below that, hard work doesn't really matter at all. Um, and I think that it's interesting because in athletic pursuits where there is a, a very significant genetic component, um, to elite levels of competition. The reason that hard work starts to matter less is just that because genetics plays such a predominant role. I think when you get outside of sport and into things like writing, or um, I know you give the example of business, which is more broad, where maybe genetics isn't as important as how fast you can run. It's not so much that, um, that hard work you know, like hard work still has its place as a, as a minuscule effect because there are so many other factors, uh, environmental factors and luck plays a huge role. So I think that's like an interesting differentiator too. I guess it's a long winded way of getting there, but in things that are very concrete and have huge genetic components, a la sport, the hard work gets minimized because of genetics In things that don't have genetic components, but are not discrete and very open-ended. There's so much room for luck that again, hard work gets minimized because luck is so important. Um, you know, we know this game well. We talked about on our on our more recent podcast on how publishing works. Like, you know, we caught some lucky breaks with peak performance that if we wouldn't have gotten those breaks, who knows if we'd be making a living doing stuff like this. And 
that's not because we worked hard. That's because we got lucky breaks. In Rachel Hollis's case, for all we know, you know, Oprah Winfrey's assistant read her book and thought it was good and gave it to Oprah. And then Oprah made it in the book club. And that's why Rachel Hollis is where she is because of an assistant who had like, there's so much luck involved in these pursuits that um, it's very hard to say that hard work makes that much of a difference. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that that up because I think that skill versus luck continuum, you know, in, in, uh, influences things to a high degree. And that's why if we're, we're bringing this back to deliberate practice, it's also why chess is often used as a, a great example of the benefits of deliberate practice. But if you look at chess, it's a kind environment. Yes, it's it's and it's a very uh, skill based game. Yeah. Dave Epstein wrote about this in his book range, right? The difference between kind and wicked environments. So a kind, when I say kind environment, it has concrete rules. They don't evolve over time. Um, There are patterns that are like unbreakable. And a wicked environment is something like business where like pretty much anything goes and things can change on a dime and what worked last year might not work this year. And in kind environments, skill tends to be more important than in wicked environments where the role of luck goes up. Exactly. And I think, you know, the the reason we're going into this is because it's not to downplay work. I think, you know, I think it's worth saying this and very important is that hard work, deliberate practice, whatever you want to call it, can get you individually better from where you are, right? No one is disputing that, that in order to reach whatever potential you have in that area, you have to do focused, intense work. What we're saying here is that as a differentiator between you and someone else, it doesn't do a good job explaining or predicting, you know, um, who's going to be better, or why that, why you're better than someone else. So as we, if we bring this kind of full circle to why, you know, that Rachel Hollis example you know, got me and others upset is because just because you work hard doesn't mean that that explains why you have reached A, B, C level of success. Right. Like the hospital custodian that works the graveyard shift works just as hard as Rachel Hollis. Right. Exactly. Um, Maybe wasn't born into a family that could afford to get tutoring for an ACT or an SAT. So Yeah, that's it. Like hard work is great. Hard work makes you better. But to say that hard work is this differentiator and therefore makes you um, like more morally superior to other people is just garbage um, because it's not true. And this goes all the way back to like, oh, man, okay, we're going to get nerdy here. So Steve gets nerdy on the science. I get nerdy on the history. So you often hear about the Protestant work ethic, and this goes back to um, like Martin Luther and the Protestant work ethic, where this comes from is, and this blew my mind when I first learned it. So Protestants believed that when you are like born, your ultimate fate is already determined. So nothing you can do on earth is going to get you into heaven or get you into hell. It's already determined. This is very counterintuitive. I was thinking that they would have thought that like, well, if you work hard, then you go to heaven. But no, they thought that God already decided your place. 
So then to try to convince themselves that they were going to heaven, they all worked really hard because they had this twisted logic where they said, well, if I'm a hard worker, then God must have given me the capacity to work hard because God knows that my place is in heaven. So they weren't even working hard to get to heaven. They were working hard to convince themselves that God had already selected them to go to heaven. And that was the beginning of hard work taking on this like moral undertone that it carries to, to this day. Clearly in Rachel Hollis's brain and, and in all of our brains. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, the morality around it is is fascinating. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw in some history as well, because I actually read this recently in a book I'm reading uh, called Born Losers. Um, I forget the author off the top of my head, but we'll include it in the show notes. Um, and he makes the case, okay, tracking the history that success and failure didn't always have this morality around them, right? That if you failed, there was something morally wrong with you, essentially, until it started to change in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and then really changed in the 1800s because of the credit industry. Because all of the sudden in the eighteen mid-1800s, when banks are starting to loan people money, they needed some way to judge people. So as worthy or not of being lent to. So they had all these like credit uh, ratings, essentially, but they were all, you know, all adjectives to describe kind of like good or bad people. And that this this like rating led to seeing people as a fail when you failed, that it was some moral failure. And that before then it was seen more of, well, you know, this isn't a reflection on me. It's just some failure is something that occurs. So even the language shift to degree from, you know, I failed at my business or I failed at, you know, my sport or whatever to I am a failure. Right. So yeah, we've and, got, and, and that's wild. Yeah. So we've got these interesting historical things that especially are prevalent in the U S that shift us to moralize, not only, failure and success, but also work ethic and hard work. Yeah. And and it comes back to what we've been saying. So hard work makes you your best. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be the best. And hard work also is, um, I'm a big believer that it is inherently valuable in and of itself, right? We talk about mastery on this podcast and in our newsletter all the time, being that the, um, the benefit that one gets to their spirit and mental health, whatever word, their soul that captures this from getting it, starting at point A, putting in work and then getting to point B or even failing to get to point B is so valuable because we humans crave this kind of concrete, tactile sense of progress. And um, so hard work is great. Don't get us wrong. But it shouldn't be used to um, to make one like think that you're moral, morally, excuse me, morally superior. Right, exactly. It's this like for whatever reason in the U.S. Well, the reasons we just explained, it's interesting, and it's other parts of the world too. But it's very U.S. centric because we also have this um, this conceptualization of like the self-made man and all this other stuff. We could go down that rabbit hole where it it 
like it almost forces us to intertwine this like moral sense of of goodness or evil or badness or whatever you want to call it with um you know i saw this great i saw this great tweet from um paul graham the the y combinator guy who basically um said that anyone that is like at the top of what they do or started this really successful company and thinks it's all because of their hard work and they didn't get lucky is the person that got luckiest of them all. <laughs> Meaning like if you're dumb enough to believe that it was just hard work that got you there, it, it probably was none of your brain and all luck. Um, so I think like, that's it. I think we have to start having more conversations about like, yeah, like I gave it my all and I've got super lucky um, as we succeed. So, yeah. And I think that's super important. I love that quote. And I think that like, it's also, I don't know, makes you feel good. It's like there's a psychological well-being to sit there and be like, oh, I got here because I worked hard, right? You're attributing your successes to things that uh, you can control, right? That are internal instead of saying like, oh, so there's there's part of that that like makes sense. Of course, people attribute, you know, why they did why they achieved something to something that they can can control something that they did all of that stuff like that's human nature but i think that's that in itself is why it's even more important to step back like get some perspective and remember that like all these other factors play play a large role in this whole mess yeah so let's not belabor it i think our listeners get the main point that we're trying to make and Maybe this week will just be a slightly shorter episode because of it, but I want to flip this on its head before we end. And the example that I want to give is when you restrict the range and you get to an elite level and you have somebody that doesn't work hard at all and someone that works really hard, then can hard work be the differentiator? And the example that I always love to use is the difference between LeBron James and Allen Iverson. So... It is well known that LeBron James is so methodical about how he carries himself as an athlete. He has a personal chef. He has a personal masseuse. Um, we, we, our friend uh, Henry Abbott, you know, from True Hoops, it's like an NBA insider, wrote this great article on how a lot of athletes don't like to play with LeBron because he's so controlling that he'll be like, curfews at 10 p.m. for everyone, not just for me, but everyone needs their sleep because sleep is important. So Part of the reason I love LeBron is he is so performance oriented. Compare that with someone like Allen Iverson, who I have another friend, I'm not going to name him, that traveled with a, the, the, the team that Allen Iverson was playing at the time, the Detroit Pistons, and would tell me these stories that Allen Iverson would, um, would go out like most nights and just party and like play hungover. And Allen Iverson was phenomenal. Like he was the, he, I still think maybe Steph Curry is a little bit better, but like the best pure score. And it makes me wonder if Allen Iverson would have worked as hard as LeBron James and LeBron James would have not worked at all. Like Allen Iverson, would that have totally switched? Like would Allen Iverson be one of the best players of all time? You know, I think the key here is we don't know the, the, the talent, you know, stealing of either of those guys we can guess right lebron's got to be damn near close based yeah. on how hard he works but yeah lebron's got to be pretty close right 
But maybe Iverson had a similar level talent ceiling and just never, never came up to it to that level because he didn't work as hard. And that could be the case, right? And in these one-off situations, like, yes, there can be differentiators where you can say that's the difference between LeBron and um, and Iverson. And to degree, it, it, it can be. But like their difference, if we zoomed all the way out, the difference between Iverson and LeBron is very small on the grand scheme of things. It's only when we zoom into the restrict world, the range. Yep. The world of the elite of the elite where it becomes okay. That, that, that is a potential explainer. Yeah. And it's, it, it is just so fascinating because I love to do like these hypotheticals and there are other examples in sports too. And then you almost wonder if, part of the reason that someone like an Iverson doesn't work hard when they reach that level is because they were so freaking talented that they never had to work hard until they got to that level. And this leads to this hypothesis theory that I have that is just that, like a little personal theory. It's never been tested. I don't know if it's true, but I find it interesting to talk about. I wonder if the best place to be for long-term performance growing up is in like the 93rd to 98th percentile. Because if you're below the 93rd percentile, sorry, kiddos, you just probably don't have the genetics it's going to take. And this is at least in sport. And if you're above the 98th percentile, you might be so good that you're coddled by coaches and you don't have to work hard because you're so good and the coaches let you get away with whatever you want. But if you're like between 93 and 98, the coaches are still going to coach you because they can't just like literally sleep on you and have you dominate. So you learn the ethic of hard work. And then when it gets to the point where everyone's working hard, you have that ability, whereas others don't. Now, you could argue that LeBron, though, totally blows that theory up because LeBron was like the best starting in fifth grade. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's a good theory. It's an interesting one. Again, on an individual level, it probably varies a lot. And we can find examples that are for or against it. But I think in general, you know, what you're getting at is you want to make sure that someone doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to just rest on their talent and never explore how to work hard at a young age. And I think if you can figure out with the super talented athlete how to get them to work hard at the young age, then you get a LeBron, right? Yeah. The problem is almost, it's like the support around them is if you've got the, if you've got the wrong kind of support in the sense that lets them get away with, you know, cruising on their talent, then that could lead to some, some bad habits over the, the long haul. It's also interesting if you, you know, we're using basketball as an example, but a lot of, a lot of it depends on how much is a, of it is, we'll call it uh, pure skill versus how much of it is that skill that is ingrained uh, through hard work. So if I'm comparing running, for example, um, at the lead elite level, you can't get away on talent because so much of the sport is like getting physiologically better, which requires a heck of a lot of, of work ethic. But in order to get to the elite elite level, you can't rely on hard work because so much of it is genetics. Right. So it's, it's, it's and like switches yeah. is what you're saying it when it gets to the top in, yep. in something like running. Um, and in different parts of basketball, 
I feel like it also switches, right? Because right. like now I'm thinking of like someone like a Ray Allen, just a phenomenal like drop down shooter, excuse me, drop dead shooter. And Ray Allen, similar to LeBron, like no one got along with him because he worked so hard and he wasn't, he wasn't into like the party nightclub scene because he's freaking shooting a thousand jump shots every night after games. And that is a part of the game that is very skill-based, right? So like that is a part of the game where practice is going to matter a ton. Whereas if you're Shaq, you don't have to practice. Charles Barkley, oh man, what, what, sorry, well, listeners, you can tell that Steve and I love reliving our teen years and nerding out on um, basketball from, from the, the good old days of the game. But I heard Charles Barkley on a podcast say that Shaq should not like – they were joking around about the TNT thing and um, cause they're both on TNT and Barkley said that Shaq doesn't know shit about basketball. And the guy's like, what do you mean? He's like, Shaq, he's just a truck. All he had to do is stand there. Like he didn't have to learn how the game worked. He just stood there. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and like, that's such a difference between a Shaq and a Ray Allen where one is like super skill based. And I'm sure Shaq did more than just stand there. But to Barkley's point, Shaq was just like this genetic freak of nature with such size and athleticism that he really didn't have to learn basketball. He could just stand there. His free throw shooting is a great example of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Does this mean, Steve, that if I want my son to be a professional athlete, I should have him focus on like kicking field goals? Or I'm trying to think, what are some other sports that are like, even that you probably need a hell of a strong leg, but what are some sports where it's just like so skill-based? Probably kicking, long snapping. Long snapping for sure. Yeah. That's how I'll get him into the Ivy League school. For listeners that are confused, go back, listen to our last podcast about uh, <laughs> Ivy League school admissions. Yeah. Punting. Those those would all be, uh, you know. Good. But even that, I feel like, is genetic. Going back to high school, the kicker on my high school football team, Kyle Lambert, he could freaking nail 50-yard field goals back in high school. Got college offers. He's a freak. I mean, he yeah, he practiced, but he just had a hell of a leg. Like, he would sit there, do bicep curls while we were, um, like, actually practicing football because, you know, he had to be a kicker. He had to look all good. And then he'd come out in the last 10 minutes of practice, do special teams, and he'd boot the ball, like, 55-yard <laughs> field goals. And then you go back into the gym and do more bicep curls. So even something like kicking probably has a lot of um, luck with winning the genetic lottery. I mean, yeah, everything has a high degree of of, um, of genetic involvement. You know, I don't remember the exact article that it was, but gosh, maybe a decade ago, someone, I'm going to have to find this. Someone wrote an article on the easiest like Olympic sport to make. And I don't remember the conclusion at all. So this is kind of not helpful. But it reminds me of this because they went around and and tried all these different sports and explored all these different sports to see what one required essentially the least amount of like genetic talent, we'll call it, and the most amount of, oh, I can just work my ass off at this skill to get better. Oh, I'd love to read that. Probably curling would be my guess. And then the flip side of it is the sport that I think has got to be the hardest. And I don't even know what it's called because it's so obscure, but it's like the rifle pistol shooting where you like basically have to cross country ski like as hard as you can and then like shoot a pistol a hundred yards away at a small target 
and then ski to the next target and then shoot it. Um, I can't do either of those things and try to combine them. Whew. Do you know what sport I'm talking about? There's a name for it. Is it just called like the the shooting Bi- biathlon? I yeah, think. whatever it is, you got to like hold the gun steady, yeah. and you know, yeah. I'm 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 in awe of the the fitness that it would take to do that. Good stuff. All right. Well, we've explored. We we've gone from Rachel Hollis self help guru all the way to the shooting while cross country skiing. And you know what? Those cross-country skiers that are shooting Rachel Hollis, they work a lot harder than you, and they don't have people cleaning their toilets. They're obscure Olympic athletes that are probably in tons of debt because they had to take out debt to train so hard. Um, They probably struggled to pay rent, like most Olympic athletes. And um, yeah, I think they worked harder than you, Rachel Hollis. So if you're listening... You know, no, um, no digs, but, um, you're not an Olympic athlete. Harder to be an Olympic athlete than to write a self-help book. We would know. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's for damn sure. This is what we do all day, Steve. (laughs) Um, no, I mean, it's a good place to end. Like, yeah, we work hard, uh, and we got really lucky and like, I think that's okay. I don't feel bad saying it. I think that, you know, like Paul Graham tweeted, like, if you don't think that you got really lucky, then it's probably a screw loose up there. Yep. No, it's it's all about keeping perspective. You know, I think, you know, we joke around and sometimes are harsh on random people and stuff like that. But the goal is to come away with lessons. And I think the lesson here is don't take yourself too seriously. Of course, hard work matters. Of course, it's great to, you know, put in the effort and that will help you fulfill your individual potential. But what it doesn't do is explain the difference between you know me and brad you know brad can train all day get the best coaches in the world and he's still not going to be able to run as fast as i am and i can lift weights all day and probably never come close to whatever brad does so that's not true steve i know you can do it it's the 23 and me test for long-time right. listeners, sorry, I sound like a broken record, but I love the story. Steve took a 23andMe genetic test, and it told Steve that he had like the fast twitch muscle fibers, and he'd be a power athlete. As everyone knows, Steve was one of the best distance runners in all the land back in the day, and now I tell Steve that he should switch to lifting weights because he will become really, really strong. You know, Ryan Hall did it. I don't know how. So Yeah, phenomenal Olympic marathoner. He, fastest U.S. marathon record for the men? Yep. Yeah you know, like a twig when he was running at that level and got super into strength training. And now this is like a, a tree trunk. Um, so talk about a freaking nature athlete. Um, and yeah, you know, hopefully we weren't too hard on Rachel Hollis, but it's just so cringeworthy because it's like, I don't think we were too hard on Rachel Hollis. If I am ever in a position to a think it's important to clean a toilet because that's what flushing's for B need to have my toilet cleaned by someone other than me or to be fair, a family member. It's not always me doing the cleaning and C to have that person come twice a week. I mean, you should already be yelling at me, even if I'm not public about it. Like Brad, why do you need someone to clean your toilet twice a week? Um, and you know, I told my wife we were going to be talking about this earlier today and she made a good point, which is look, there's nothing wrong with having people to come clean your toilets twice a week. 
you're employing, assuming that you're paying them like a, a decent wage and whatnot, you're employing people, this, that, and the other. What's wrong is the crazy amount of moralizing and particularly not because it makes Rachel Hollis feel good, but because of all the people out there that are freaking on welfare that are working their ass off just to get a job at minimum wage, it makes them feel bad. Like if only I worked harder. And for the middle ground people like you and I, we hear that. And if we buy into it, then we're going to start ramping up how hard we work and the chance of uh, illness, injury, burnout goes way up. So, you know, perhaps to come full circle, perhaps Rachel Hollis said that because she's working so hard and she's waking up at 4 a.m. and she's not sleeping that the part of her brain that is in charge of emotional regulation, which we know research shows is totally contingent on how much you sleep went offline. So maybe Rachel Hollis just needs to work a little bit less hard. Get some sleep. Yeah. All right. Always comes back to sleep. Well, thanks for bearing with us. Um, we love you guys. We appreciate your support. Um, we welcome all feedback. Hit us up at the website, www.thegrowtheq.com. And if you're so inclined and you really like what you hear, um, www.patreon slash the growth equation, become a member of our exclusive Patreon community, get all kinds of cool stuff and help us keep working hard. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.